one of the most sobering aspects of the Bible to me is how it, it does not hide the faults, the weaknesses, the limitations, and the failures of the heroes therein. Whether it's Noah or Abraham and Sarah, or whether it's Moses or David or Esther or Elijah, these great spiritual heroes, it can be unsettling when we see them waver. But many of you know exactly what that's like. It, it may be sobering when we read of, of it in others, but it's discouraging and downright humiliating when it's us. Have you been there where you are so bold, confident, feel like you, you cannot be shaken one moment, and just a short time later, with maybe something just as similar, or maybe worse, or maybe even not, not even as terrible, you start to wonder, is God going to come through this time? You're like Peter, who boldly proclaims that even if everybody falls away, Lord, I will die with you. And that night he denied him three times. Or John the Baptist, who confidently states, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then within a few short months in prison says, is he really the one? Or are we looking for someone else? Our faith wavers, doesn't it? For many of us, our world seems so stable for so long. And it seems over the past several years, maybe even especially the past 18 months, that chaos and unrest seems to be moving at warp speed, where you have good being called evil and evil being called good. We have challenges with COVID. We have racial tension. We have political division. We have cultural upheaval. That's all on top of our own personal issues. Where we or our family members are sick or in financial difficulties, relational strife. We have sin and temptation that we're constantly battling. And our faith wavers. And do you know what we need for this? We need this book. We need the Bible. Now I know, I know that sounds naively simplistic. You're telling me, like for all of our difficulties and all of our trials and all of our struggles to keep our faith secure in the midst of all this, we need this book? Yeah. We need the Word of the living God. Our faith, you see, is just too weak. It's too fragile to be sustained and strengthened by anything less than all the fullness of the unfolding of the redemptive revelation of God. Or to put it more concisely, as Alistair Begg has said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. If you want to be whole, if you want to be healthy and vibrant, not just surviving but thriving in your faith, you need the entire Bible. We need the Word of God. God knew this. All along, he knew. He knew that we would need more than the plain teaching of John 3.16. We don't need less than that, but we need more. Among other things, we need the history of the work of God throughout, in his people throughout the centuries. We need to be able to look back and see how the Lord has been faithful to his people, keeping his promises, fulfilling his plans, his purposes, and his prophecies over and over and over and over again. Our faith needs to see that. 
But it's the, the, the truth we see has been built up on a foundation that has been, been lifting it up and holding it secure for millennia. I was talking with a friend earlier this past week, going through a really um, stressful time in their life. And they're talking about their anxiety. And I said, you know, having anxiety means you're human and that you're alive, right? And you're not putting your head in the sand. But being a Christian means you take that anxiety to the Lord. And so you, you have anxiety, fine. But in, in a stage of your life, maybe the stage of our culture or our world, whatever it is, when there seems to be every reason to be anxious, when we need to go back to this book and find every reason to have hope. We need this over and over and over again. Constant anxiety requires constant fighting for faith. And in order for our faith to stay alive and to grow in the midst of this world full of struggle, in this world full of uncertainty, in the midst of this world full of strife and, and, and anxieties and difficulties and sin and suffering, lots of suffering, we need to read and reflect often upon how the, the plans and the purposes of God have been unstoppably carried out since the beginning. And they are continuing to, continuing to be unstoppably carried out to the minutest detail. More than that, it is good and it is right and necessary, necessary for our faith to read and reflect upon how all of history, including the best and the worst of times in this world and the best and worst of times of our own personal lives, all of history centers on Jesus Christ, that he is the focal point. In other words, we need to see not only the substance, Jesus himself, but the great shadows that he casts. We most often see the substance of Jesus in the New Testament, who Jesus is and what he has done, but we see the shadows in the Old Testament, in books like Exodus, for example. The shadows are people. They are events and they are institutions that, that point to Jesus as their ultimate fulfillment, as their ultimate purpose. These shadows in the Old Testament are people like Moses and Aaron and David, they are prophets and priests and kings who are like types of Christ. They prefigure who he will be. Now, as I said, they have flaws and faults and sins, so they're not exactly like him. They're not him. Just like a shadow is not the substance itself, but they're, they're like it, and they point. They point in that direction. These, there are godly men and women throughout the Old Testament that we look at and we see, man, they had such faith and such righteousness and such faithfulness that they... They remind me of somebody. It's Jesus. These shadows of events like Israel's exodus out of Egypt, or like Daniel being rescued out of the lion's den, or Jonah being swallowed by a great fish instead of drowning in a sea. They all point to what Jesus would do in rescuing his people from their sin. These shadows of the institutions like the Passover, or like sacrifices in the entire sacrificial system, or the Sabbaths, they all point to Jesus as their ultimate fulfillment or purpose. And we need these shadows. We need these shadows. I was telling my girls on the way here, I said, if I walked up to you and I gave you a present, you might say, thanks, Dad. 
But what if I explain to you and you are able to see, watch a, a video or, or read the story of how for the past 30 years I've been working on this president, this present. I've, I've been building it. I've went all around the world spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and thousands of hours working on this thing to get all the materials, finding experts to help with all these resources through all this time and just to give it to you, hoping that one day I would have two girls to be able to give this to. Would it be more special to you? I said, yes, absolutely. You see, God didn't just say, here's my son. He said, I want to give you thousands of years of my plan and of my promises and of these shadows pointing to him all along the way so as to give you a foundation, a firm foundation for when he comes, you won't just see him as more special, you will learn to trust him more fully because my plans have always been about him for you. We need these shadows in order to strengthen our faith. God is more committed to our salvation than we are, which means he must be more committed to our faith than we are. So he's given us these shadows. We need to see them in order to have our faith strengthened, but in order for these, these shadows in the Old Testament to actually impact our faith for good, we need to actually recognize the dots in the Old Testament and then draw lines connecting them to the New Testament fulfillments. Specifically today, I want to show you how to connect the dots of the Sabbath in the Old Testament to the promises and the, to the fulfillments of rest in the New Covenant in Jesus. But why am I preaching about the Sabbath? It's a good question because I've already preached on the Sabbath earlier this year. And the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the Fourth Commandment is the Sabbath. And I preached on that a few months ago. But the reason I'm preaching on it now is quite simple. It's because it's in the passage that we're in. And we're preaching through the Bible sequentially here in order. And we find it here. But that actually leads to another question. Why is it here? Why is he telling us about it again? And, and let me explain further why this is, seems to be so oddly out of place. You, you can break the book of Exodus up into four sections. And the last section is the one we're in. Chapters 16 through 40. Or sorry, 25 through 40. It's 16 chapters. And in these chapters, 25 through 40, you're all about the work of the people for God building the tabernacle. It's about them working on, on the tabernacle. And so why would he include passages about the Sabbath where they are not work? It, it, take this even further. Chapters 25 through 31, the first half of this, are about the tabernacle work being commanded. You can listen to Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Where he begins this, God speaking to Moses says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Set to work and build the tabernacle. The last half of this section is on the work of the tabernacle being completed. We find it in Exodus 39, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded, as commanded Moses, so they did. Exodus 39, verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. And then Moses blessed them. And the very last verse of, of our section, chapter 40, verse 33, says, So Moses finished the work. This whole section is about the work of the tabernacle. It's about the work being commanded or the work being completed. So why talk about stopping working, ceasing from work on the, every seventh day of the week? And more than that, there's not just mentioned here, it's prominent in this last section. 
You might have noticed that chapters 25 and th uh, through 31 is the first half, and 35 through 40 is the last half, but there's a few chapters missing, 32 through 34. And that's the interlude. This is where they set to evil work. They work, all right. They work to build a golden calf. They make it. They set it up before them. They bow down to it and worship it instead of Yahweh. And th chapters 32 through 34 is about that whole mess and how God responds to them. But do you want to know the very last thing that Moses records God saying before the calf, golden calf debacle? It's about the Sabbath. In the section about get to work, building my tabernacle. Oh, yeah, by the way, don't work on the Sabbath. That's the very last thing he says before the golden calf incident. And the very first thing he says after it is chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, where he says, oh yeah, before I tell you to work, don't work. Don't work on the Sabbath. And in fact, even in the midst of the golden calf debacle, we find in chapter 34, he mentions again, don't work on the Sabbath. So why? Why all this, this pointing to not working when it's all the section is about working? Why the prominence of the Sabbath? Because of what it's all about. Namely, the Sabbath is a sign about the Lord keeping His people connected to Him. As they keep the Sabbath, He's keeping them connected to Him, and He's strengthening their faith in Him. And this really answers the question of why I'm preaching, or why I'm eager to preach it to you today. Because the Sabbath, as a sign, is what God uses to connect you to Him, to keep you connected, and to strengthen your faith in Him. So let's unpack a little bit of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath all about? Well, the Sabbath, as a sign, is a precept. It has a principle, and it does point to something beyond itself. It is something, it has something, and it does something. The Sabbath is a sign. And signs can function in various ways. Some signs command, stop, yield, do not enter, right? Other signs inform, like restrooms, pick up your order, you can pick up your order here, or you order over here, they're just inf informing you what is. And other signs still direct, they're arrows, they point, go this way if you want to use the restroom. Enter this way if you want to get into our parking lot, they direct you where to go. The Sabbath, as a sign, functions in all three ways. And I want to show you through these words of precept, principle, and point. The Sabbath is a precept. A precept is just a rule. Kids, if your parents tell you to go clean your room, that's a precept. It's just a command or a rule. The Sabbath, as a precept, was a sign of the Old Covenant. It was a sign of the Old Covenant. It was about the connection of the people of Israel to the Lord and about their, the commands He gave them and the promises He gave them. If you look with me in Exodus chapter 31, verse 13, actually starting in verse 12, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. That's a command. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath. Verse 15, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. You're not to work on those days. This is a command. The command to be kept. So the, 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 the Sabbath as a precept functioned as a sign by way of command, but only temporarily. It was a temporary command because it was indelibly tied to the covenant, to the old covenant. Look with me again at verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths for, here's the reason why you should keep it, because it is a sign between me and you. That phrase, a sign between me and you, is only used two other times and two other ways in the Old Testament. Both other times, 
had to do with a covenant. The first being the covenant God made with Noah and the whole earth, that he would not flood the world again. And then what was the sign that he gave him? The rainbow in the sky. The second time it was with Abraham and his descendants. And what was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Here, the sign, the covenant is with, is with his people through Moses, the Mosaic or the old covenant, and the sign is the Sabbath. Cease from working on the seventh day. You see it even more clearly here in verse 16 where he says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. As long as you have this old covenant, as long as it's in force, you are to keep this Sabbath sign. The sign of the old covenant. And that's why it was such a big deal. He says in verse 15 that whoever does, or verse 14, whoever does not keep it shall be put to death. In verse 15, whoever does not keep it shall be put to death. They shall be cut off from their people. Because basically they were saying, I don't want to be a part of your covenant people anymore, God. They were rejecting when they did not keep the Sabbath. See, this was all temporary because it was tied to the old covenant, but we're not in the old covenant. When Jesus came, he ushered into the new covenant. The new covenant is, is different and better than the old covenant because it has, it's built on better promises and it has a better mediator, the Lord Jesus. So the precept, since it was for old covenant Israel, is a sign no longer to be obeyed but to be remembered so that we can learn from it. it we need to look back and see it as a shadow that is, that, that's pointing to a substance. The substance belongs to Christ. However, just because the specific precept is no longer binding for Christians in the New Covenant does not mean there's nothing to be obeyed in the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is not only a precept, it also has a principle. And the Sabbath's principle is also a sign, not of the Old Covenant, it's a sign of deeper realities. It's a sign of deeper realities about the need to reorient ourselves on God by renewing our faithfulness to Him and renewing our faith in Him. Principle is the, the reason. It's the, it's the truth and ideas behind and, and underneath the precept. Why is the Sabbath even given? Because of what it's all about. And because of these deeper realities. Look with me again at Exodus 31, verse 13. After he says, it, you shall keep it because it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations, he says, so that the purpose is that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That is, I, the Lord, set you apart. I have consecrated you, made you my own. You belong to me. You're mine. This is the way to show that. That I'm your covenant God. You're my covenant people. Look at verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. There's that covenantal language again. But then he says that in six days, it's a sign that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Going back to Genesis, God created the world out of nothing, the entire universe. And on the seventh day, he saw all that he had made and he said it was very good. And he sat down enthroned over the universe to rule over it for its good and his glory. That's what it means that he rested. He ceased from his creational work to then be about preserving it and ruling over it for the good of his people. But... You go now to Deuteronomy. You can keep your finger there in Exodus 31 and go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. God is the sovereign one who sat down enthroned over his creation, and that's why we should keep the Sabbath. But then in verse 13 through 15 of Deuteronomy 5, we read, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? He says, you can't just rest and let, make everybody else do your work for you because your male servant and your female servant need to rest as well. Then he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And if you would think, okay, that's enough. I, I get it. So I can't treat my slaves or those in my household under my care the way that Pharaoh treated me. He gave us no rest. God has given us rest, so now we need to give them rest. That would be enough. But that's not how he ends it. Here's the kicker. He says, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, this is why you should keep the Sabbath. The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day because he rescued you out of Egypt. But whoa, whoa, wait, wait. He just said in Exodus 31, you should keep the Sabbath because it was, he rested on, from creation. So which is it? Should, we, should, should they have kept the Sabbath because of God's work in creation or because of God's work in redemption? And the answer is both. It's both. And they're tied in this way. When he sat down to reign over creation, resting on the seventh day, he said, I'm going to use all my sovereign, supreme authority and power to come in and rescue my people. And because I have made you, because I sustain you and rule over you, and because I have rescued you and brought you into covenant with me, you're mine. So live like it. Let me be the center of the universe. That's, that's who I am. That's what is. So acknowledge that. Reorient yourself on me over and over again. Every week you need to reorient yourself by renewing your faithfulness to me and renewing your faith in me. That's the principle of the Sabbath. And as such... It is a sign that functions both to inform and to command. Now, signs do this all the time. If we read a sign and it says employees only or one-way street, it doesn't just mean to inform you of, oh, that's what this is. It's meant to also to command you, don't enter here unless you are an employee. Don't go down that way the wrong direction. It's informing and commanding, and this principle is doing the same. It's informing us that God indeed is the supreme one overall, and He is the center of the universe, so we ought to. Here's what we should command, obey the command of reorienting ourselves on Him by renewing our faithfulness to Him and renewing our faith in Him regularly. So the principle, since it is enduring for all time, for every person, it is a sign to be understood so that it can be obeyed. The Sabbath is not only a precept and not only does it have a principle, it does something. It points to something beyond itself. The Sabbath as it points doesn't point to the old covenant with Israel. It doesn't point necessarily to the deeper realities like the principle, but it points to the sign of the coming of Christ. It's a sign pointing to the coming of Christ about His promise, about God's promise and about God's sufficiency to give His people rest in His Son, Jesus Christ, and about our need to trust Him for it. The, the, I talked earlier about the shadows. The, the, the shadow here is often in the Old Testament, but the substance is in the New. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow, and it was pointing all the while to Jesus, the Christ, in whom we will have rest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 with me. 
Hebrews 4, starting at verses 3 and 4, we read of the substance of the, of the Sabbath's shadow. For we who have believed enter that rest, that Sabbath rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is divine rest that we get to enter into by faith. Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. All of his works of creation were completed, and so he rested to reign over it, and we are to rest in his reign. Rest in his divine rest by faith. Not by keeping the old uh, uh, covenant Sabbath command. He says in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. You enter it by faith. By faith in what? By faith in God, yes. By faith in His promises, absolutely. By faith in His gospel promises in Jesus Christ, most specifically. You trust in, you embrace Jesus and find rest. We have already have it. We've entered into it by faith. And yet, he says in verse 8, that there's more to come. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua was the leader of the people of Israel after Moses, leading them into the promised land. Do you think they had rest in Egypt? No way. Did they have rest in the wilderness? No, not really. So they were to have rest in, the, the, in Canaan, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Indeed, but only in part. And so he says, if Joshua had given them rest, this kind of rest, this divine rest of God, the rest that with he rested with on the seventh day, then he would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not another Saturday. No, it's pointing to something beyond itself. This is the Sabbath was pointing to a greater rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from the works as God did from His. If we believe by faith in Jesus, we have rest. We've entered into it. And yet, and yet we're not rested, are we? Not completely. This world requires hard work to flee from temptation, to resist the devil, to fight against our own flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly something to fight against, to work against, and to work for good, to build up the body of Christ, and to work to bring about the gospel to the nations. We have work to do. We have not ceased from our work yet. So he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest yet to come, so that no one may fail fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is still yet a fullness to the rest that we're waiting for. This is the ultimate focus of the Sabbath as it points to something beyond itself. And as such, it functions as a sign to inform us, to direct us, and to command us. It informs us that Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath's shadow. And it directs us to trust in Him and even it did commands us to submit to Him and give our faithfulness to Him. So the pointer, since it centers on Christ, is a sign to be followed, like arrows to be followed, so that we can embrace Christ by faith. But remember, I've said from the beginning <clears throat> that this is also for Christians to read. You say, well, I've, I already do follow uh, the, the Sabbath to trust in Christ. I've already followed this shadow. I've seen Christ and I trust in Him. And follow it again and again and again to a stronger, deeper, richer, more focused faith in Him. 
That's why we read of these shadows. That's why we read the Old Testament to say, I want to see more clearly, more fully, the foundation and the shadow of the substance. Let me just dive a bit deeper into what it means the Sabbath points us to Christ and the rest we have in Him as the substance. The, shadow is, the Sabbath is a shadow, and it points us to the substance of Christ, but how? How does it do that? How, how does the sign of the Sabbath in the Old Testament direct us to embrace Christ by faith? How can, should we connect the dots of the Sabbath in the Old Testament to the new covenant realities and promises fulfilled in Jesus? Well, the principle of the Sabbath is about reorienting our lives, ourselves on God by renewing our faithfulness to Him and our faith in Him, right? So then when we see that the Sabbath is a sign pointing us to and directing us to embrace Christ, then Jesus becomes the, our orientating focus. Jesus becomes the one in whom we place our faith. Jesus indeed becomes the one in whom we find our rest. It's from Jesus that we have our rest, our rest from sin. It's in Jesus that we find our rest from the reigning power of sin. It's in Jesus that we find our rest from the unbearable shame of sin and from the condemning guilt of sin. It's in Jesus that we have this rest from sin because He both cleanses us and changes us. He forgives us and He sanctifies us. He rescues us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Jesus gives us rest from sin. It is in Jesus also that we are able to find rest from the futility of spinning our wheels in a very meaningless life. A life where we seem to be constantly trying to find what it is that we should stand for. Well, it's in Jesus that we find our identity. It's in Jesus that we find our meaning and our purpose and our marching orders. And so it's no futility. We rest from that. And in Jesus... We have rest from the dead religiosity that has us foolishly trying to constantly prop up our good works for ourselves and others to see and for God to be impressed with that He would accept us and be good to us. That's, that's overwhelming. That's so tiring. That's burdensome. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, and you won't have to deal with that because you find rest in me. Jesus is the one who gives us rest from trying to control this world. From trying to control others around us, our own family members. And trying to control every situation and our destiny, our future. We get this rest as we look to Him to be our sovereign Lord over all things. And we rest in Him now. Knowing that one day He will bring the full and perfect and complete and everlasting rest to this broken and chaotic and twisted and sin-sick world. So He's both our rest and our hope for, for fullness of future rest. The rest promised us in Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath's shadow. The Sabbath is the sign that has always been pointing to, always been directing us to trust in Christ, to trust more and more and more in Christ. And yet... <clears throat> Many Christians fail to be blessed by it. Many Christians fail to have their faith strengthened by these shadows in the Old Testament. And the reason for this are, one, many don't know or don't even read their Old Testament. Or maybe not even their Bible. I mean, 
That's pretty clear, right? A sign has no use, no function to it if you don't see it. If you don't read it. If someone doesn't tell you about it. We need to see the shadow in order to be led to the substance. So the application is simple. Pick it up and read it. You need to read the Bible. You need to read the Old Testament. Gather, get a plan that, that gives you a, maybe a, a general overview of the Bible. You can get a, a children's storybook Bible, a good one that, that will show you connected dots all the way through to Jesus. Read the Bible. Another problem, the reason why many Christians are not strengthened in their faith by these shadows is because if they do read their Old Testament, they don't or don't know how to appropriately connect them to Christ. They don't know how to see Jesus as the substancer. And there's illegitimate ways to do it. And so they get nervous and worried and they go, I, I just, it's too difficult. I don't know how to do it. Well, if that's you, let me give you three practical applications. One, pray. Ask God to help you. He's a good father. He put it in here for your faith to strengthen it. He's not hiding it from you. He wants you to dig and to work for it, but ask him for it. And then actually practice Read the Bible. You get better at it the more you try to connect these dots and see the connections there. You get better at it. And then don't just pray and read and practice it, but get guidance. Get guidance. Do it together. I would love to hear stories of this week, you going out with your piney family or with your discipleship group or just other friends in the church and saying, well, I want to read this Old Testament passage and let's see if we can see the substance of this shadow. What is it pointing to? How is it leading to Jesus? And do it together in community. There are good books that we can give you, articles that we can show you. And I guarantee you that every one of your pastors would be elated if you came to them and said, I was reading the earlier in, this, in, in the book of Ruth, and I'm trying to figure out how is the connection to, to Jesus. We would love to walk you through that. Because we see the beauty and we want to see it more. And because we know it is strengthening of your faith. It keeps you connected and strengthens your faith in the Lord. You know, but the, another reason why many people fail to be strengthened by these, these shadows in the Old Testament is because they struggle to see how the challenges, the problems, the struggles of life, how do they fit into this shadow substance reality of all of God's promises centering on Christ being fulfilled by Him? The question in their mind or the feeling in their heart is often, okay, if Jesus truly has come to be the fulfillment of all these great and wonderful and precious Old Testament promises and prophecies and shadows, why is it that nothing has really changed? There's still sin. It still hurts. This life is still hard. I still have to work. My faith still wavers. That shouldn't be if Jesus has come and He has fulfilled all these promises, right? Nothing has really changed. The answer, at least, is twofold. One, that sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. And the fullness, the completion, the perfection of what Jesus has secured for us in His life, death, and resurrection is still yet to come. The fullness of what we are to experience is not yet. We don't live. This is not the new creation yet. We're not there. He hasn't returned again yet. So in a sense, we are still waiting for the fullness of the substance. There is still part of the shadow that is here. 
And yet, <clears throat> the second answer is that, in fact, nothing has stayed the same. Jesus actually has changed everything. We often just don't have eyes to see it. We don't trust Him. We don't live by faith in Him and in His rest. We don't live by faith in the already-ness of what Jesus has accomplished for us. So what does it practically look like to live by faith in Jesus and to enjoy the rest that He has purchased for us? Tomorrow is Labor Day. And many people, most Americans, will have off on that day and they will use it to be celebrated as workers in this society. And they will use it to celebrate the unofficial end of summer and they will gather together to do barbecues and play games and have fun. But let me give you an admonition. Do not put your hope in Labor Day to give you rest. Don't put your hope in your vacations to give you rest. Don't put your hope in your weekends or in your retirement to give you rest. Both because they can't do it and it dishonors Jesus who already purchased your rest. You find it only in Him. Because of the rest we already have in Jesus, we are, you see, to work from the rest we already have. We're not simply to work to rest. We are not meant to be barely surviving week to week, crawling into the weekend on empty, as so many people do. We are not to embrace the gospel-denying lie that we're enough and we just need to believe in ourselves. No. Then what are we to do? How should we respond to the demands of life, to the, to the never-ending to-do list of life, to the difficulties and the overwhelming uncertainties of life. How should we respond to all of this? We are to live and rest by faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus all day, every day. Which means what? It means that we are to actively embrace the reality that we are not in control, but that He is. We must humbly acknowledge that we do not have what it takes to overcome all the evils and ills of this world, but He does. We must honestly and confidently state that we simply are not enough, but that He is. He is more than enough. He is the all-sufficient one, and our refreshing, energizing, and restful heart comes only when we trust in Him and rest in Him. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the Savior of our souls and the Lord of this universe. And this means that when we go, do go to work on maybe Monday or Tuesday of this week, when we do uh, our schoolwork this week, when we're called to serve others in the church or in our home, when Satan comes to us, tempting us to despair, telling us of the guilt within, when we engage with others who are just so different from us and so difficult to deal with, and when we experience opposition to our faith and the values of God's Word, when the world seems to be falling apart and chaos is all around and we're overwhelmed by it all, then we must work and we must live from the rest we already have in Jesus which means that we will work hard because we trust Him to provide for us. It means that we will respond because we rest in Him's, His ability and His promise to bless us and others through us. It means that we will love and serve and give without panicking, without acting foolishly or sinfully because we trust Him and we rest in Him who is the sovereign one who has always kept His promises. He's proved it over and over and over again. 
So don't work and live and respond to the suffering and the strife and the struggles of this life like it all depends on you and then go and pray like it all depends on God. Don't do that. That is foolish. Pray like it all depends on God and then work and live and respond like it all depends on God because ultimately it does. Live by faith in Him. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. And some trust in politics. And some trust in education and skill and money. And some trust in networking and charisma and know-how. And some trust in strength and health and family. And some trust in youth and plans and so much more. But we, beloved, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in Jesus who gives us rest. And do you want help for that? You want encouragement for that and strength for this faith? Then look back and see over and over again how the Lord was faithful to His people. How He has kept His promises and fulfilled His purposes and His promise and His purposes and His prophecies and how He has unfolded His shadows to give you the substance. In order for your faith to stay alive and to grow in the midst of a world, a world like this one, you must read and reflect often upon how the plans and purposes of God have been unstoppably carried out since the first creation. And they will be unstoppably carried out all the way through to the new creation. And all of it, all of creation and all of history centers on Jesus. Wherein our faith is secure and our rest is already purchased. The question is not... Is the universe and God's plans and His promises and His prophecies and His shadows and all of history centered on Jesus? It is. The question is, are you? Are you centered on Christ? Is He your focus? In the midst of this world of chaos and uncertainty and unrest, are you trusting in and embracing Jesus with rest? Are you following these shadow uh, uh, signs to the substance of Jesus Christ? I'm going to close with one verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Again, he points, appoints a certain day, today. Saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. My friends, if you hear my voice this morning, you hear the voice of God as I read to you, do not harden your hearts. Embrace him by faith. Embrace His promises of rest and salvation and of hope in Jesus. This morning, if, if that's not you, if you're not embracing Christ and resting in Him, then when others partake of communion this morning, stay where you are and don't come up. That would be foolish and it would be sinful. Instead, say where you are and bow your head and ask God to open your eyes to the truth. Help him to, ask Him to help you to see the signs that all of this points to Jesus and that He is your only hope for rest here and now and hereafter. And then come talk to me afterwards. Or another pastor. Put on a connection card. Email us or just talk to another Christian around you about what it means to embrace Christ, to follow Him by faith. And this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus, and you've had your faith in Jesus affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, 
that I'm going to invite you in just a moment to exit to your left to come up to one of these tables to grab the communion of elements. And the far left is where the gluten-free is. And you can come and then take the elements and go back to your seat to the right and think about these elements that represent the body of Jesus Christ broken for sin and His blood shed for sinners. All of it to per- meant to purchase all of the promises, all of the prophecies, all of the shadows that God laid out in the Old Testament and more. And ask Him. Ask Him to help you. As you praise Him for being that substance, ask Him to help you to embrace Him by faith that you would rest in Him all the more. And if you're struggling this morning and you want to be prayed with about anything, whether you're taking communion or not, I'm going to be right here in front of the stage and I'd love to be able to pray with you. For those who are coming, whether you want to be prayed with or you're taking communion, for those who should, you may come when you're ready.